When I was 18 years old, I had a summer job in my little town in West Virginia working at the local McDonald's. And in our little town, maybe some of you remember these days if you grew up in a small town, uh, that the, the kids, the high school age kids, would cruise through town. That's what you did. You cruised through town on Friday and Saturday night. You drove around, and for some reason, going through the McDonald's parking lot was just the main thoroughfare. It was the main course that they would follow. And so it was a Friday night, and there was just tons of my friends, peers, people I knew, people who knew me out in the parking lot, driving through some park, getting food, etc. And the manager of the restaurant came up to me, and he said, hey, I got a job for you. I need you to do something. I need you to go out into the parking lot, and I need you to climb up into the dumpster, and I need you to jump up and down on the trash because it's so full, all right? So I, there I went on Friday night with all my friends around, and this is just a, a picture of a, dump, a small dumpster, but this thing was eight feet tall. This thing was huge, full of trash. Thanks, Jerry. And I climbed in that thing, and there I was as people drove around, my head popping up above the, uh, the side of the, the dumpster. And it was very embarrassing, very, very humiliating, as you can imagine. Well, today when we look in our text in Scripture, I want you to think about that Jesus willingly turned himself over to the authorities of his day, allowing himself to be treated like garbage and scum. He came into our garbage, he came into our scum for the sake of our salvation. And so as we just go to the passage we would normally be looking at today in our passage in John, we've been studying the Gospel of John, this is a wonderful passage as we start, Jesus started the Passion Week, that we will see what Jesus did willingly on your account and on my account. He climbed into our garbage. He took what we deserved. So let's look at John chapter 18. We're going to be verses 1 through 11 And I'm going to read here at the beginning, 1 through 5, before we pray and look at this passage. John writes to us, When Jesus had spoken these words, and this is the long prayer that we looked at in John chapter 17, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you for this day that we celebrate the resurrection, give special focus, special attention in a world that is working overtime against the cause of Christ, against your glory, God. And I pray that we will shine like lights in this world. Help us to see the picture of Jesus today who willingly entered into our mess for us. And God, I pray you'll help us to be willing to Embrace the scorn and the rejection that he faced on account of your name for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're actually in week number 72 of our study with the Gospel of John here at Grace Church. We go through books of the Bible, and as we know here, the Gospel of John is a very long book, and we're going through it, but it's amazing just to walk slowly with Jesus in this incredible eyewitness account that we have by the Apostle John. And John stated very clearly in chapter 20 
of this book, the purpose why he wrote it. He clearly said he wrote it so people will be convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. So remember, John is an eyewitness to the truth of Jesus. He was there with Jesus for over three years of his ministry. He saw his death, and he saw the resurrected Jesus. But back in, way back in chapter 1, verse 1 of this gospel, John told us this about Jesus. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and that's the word that he uses for, for Jesus, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus was with God, Jesus was God, yet he came to earth, entered into our mess. He took on the form of a servant, Paul tells us. He humbled himself to come to this place. Think about that for a second. I love how writer Philip Yancey writes it and explains it. He says, imagine for a moment becoming a baby again, giving up language and muscle coordination and the ability to eat solid food and control your bladder, God as a fetus. Or imagine yourself becoming a sea slug. That analogy is probably closer. On that day in Bethlehem, the maker of all that is took form as a helpless, dependent newborn. What is even more amazing is the incarnation is only the beginning of Jesus' humiliation. He came to die. He came to die. And that's why John says in verse 11 of chapter 1, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So out of love, Jesus willingly entered into our mess. He took on this humiliation, and and that's not a word that goes with God very naturally, humiliation in God, right? Jesus became flesh. He came into our mess. He came on this rescue mission for us. And he was treated like garbage by the very people that he created in the beginning with God. Again, Paul describes this in Philippians. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus willingly did this for us. And in our text today, it is the beginning, as I said, of the Passion Week. Now, you may wonder why this is called Passion, the Passion Week. Why was it called the Passion Week? Last week is from the Latin word, which means suffering. Passion means suffering. So the Passion of Christ is the story of his arrest, his trial, and his suffering. So today's text, we see Jesus' arrest. And so one of the first things we want to note right off from the beginning here is that Jesus conquered our mess as he willingly entered into this garden of Gethsemane, knowing Judas and the arresting party was right behind him, following him. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples. He continued on to the garden. He crossed this brook Kidron, so we know exactly the garden where he went where there was the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, and he and his disciple entered. So yet Judas, who left the upper room earlier, Judas, who betrayed him, also he was very familiar with the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas had a good idea where Jesus was heading. He procured this band of soldiers 
which we would know from the terminology used here, this would be several hundred, at least several hundred Roman soldiers. And not only several hundred Roman soldiers, but some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. These were the temple police. These were temple security. These were the people who were Levites, who were people of Israel, who were in charge of the temple grounds. We've seen them earlier in this book. And they went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then verse 4, this is what's important. And Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. So Judas hopes to catch Jesus by surprise. But we know that that's totally impossible. Because not only was Jesus' entire life headed for this moment, but Scripture tells us that God created Adam and placed him on earth. And at that same time, Jesus, we learned that Jesus had this destiny that was predetermined that Peter tells us about in the book of Revelation, John tells us about, that Jesus was predetermined to die for the sins of the world. So to say that Jesus was ready for this moment, it's the largest understatement you could make. Jesus willingly entered the garden knowing what was going to happen to him. He didn't try to get out of the way. He didn't try to avoid. He didn't try to scurry off. I don't know if you've seen that video circulating on the internet. It's pretty funny. This softball player, she's running from third to home, and the catcher catches the ball, has her dead in the water and out, and the base runner points over to first. The oldest trick in the book, the catcher looks, the girl dies home safe, okay? Jesus didn't be like, hey, look over there, and me and my disciples are out of here. Jesus not only voluntarily came to the garden, but he knew what was going to happen to him. He knows exactly what's going to happen to him. He had told his disciples many times what was going to happen to him. He did not try to get out of the way. We try, I mean, danger is coming to us. It's a natural thing to just, we avoid it, right? We don't bring danger into our lives intentionally. We don't do that. I was driving down Facebook Highway the other day, and out of Burgundy Timber comes a semi, never saw me coming, and I had to pull, go all the way off the road to the side of the road in order to avoid a collision there. We just naturally, it's instinct, we avoid. Jesus doesn't do that. And not only does Jesus not attempt to avoid his arrest, he willingly steps forward and identifies himself. Look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen, what's it say? He came forward and he said to them, whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? In a drive through instant culture that we live in, it'd be easy just to fly by this without really contemplating what Jesus was stepping forward and volunteering for. We've heard it so many times that we lose sight of the cruelty and the torture that awaited Jesus. You see, the religious establishment, we've just seen their hatred for him grow and grow throughout this book. They despised him. But to get to the point where they could get rid of him completely, where they could kill him, they had to get the Romans involved in it. They could not execute Jesus. So they trumped up charges, making Jesus look like an insurrectionist who would overtake the Romans, and they demanded that he suffer a painful, torturous death. Well, when the calloused Roman soldiers got their hands on Jesus, they mocked him, battered him, spit on him, flogged him, and their mockery included dressing up Jesus, who was in the beginning with God, who was God. They dressed him up in a purple robe, 
They pressed a crown of thorns into his skull. They mocked him and gave him honor. And not only was crucifixion a bad way to go, the Romans had perfected this form of execution. You see, crucifixion was a lot more about a lot more than just pain and suffering. It was about total and absolute humiliation. That's what the Romans wanted to do. It was a warning for anyone else who would dare defy the mighty Roman Empire. Here's what happens to people who push against us. And so it's a slow, public, long, drawn-out death. Jesus, when he stepped forward and he said, who are you looking for? Jesus knew exactly what was to happen. Exactly. Look at verse 4. So Jesus came forward. He said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to him, them, I am he. Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. If you're following along in your Bible or possibly on your online Bible there, if you look closely, the word he, I am he, may be in italics. And usually a lot of times we'll emphasize something by making it italics. In this case, that's not why in Scripture, in the Bible, when the translators italicize a word, that's to tell you that was added in by the translators to help us better understand what's being said. But it's a word that's not actually in the original language. And so look at that again. Who, who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I am. Jesus steps forward and says, I am. If you know the Gospel of John and you've been tracking with us, you know that this is the Old Testament name for God. This is the revered name that when God came to Moses at the burning bush and he says, who should I tell the people that are sending me? He says, tell them I am who I am. In Judaism, I am is unquestionably understood as the name for God. So whenever Jesus made an I am statement, he was identifying himself as God. So when Jesus said to them, verse 6, I am, what happens? Look what happens. They draw back and fell to the ground. They drew back and fell to the ground. Wow, why did that happen? How, why would Jesus stepping forward and saying, I am, cause all of a sudden these hardened Roman soldiers and these temple guards to just fall back to the ground? Some think that, God was manifesting his power here in just a very special, unique way like he does at times in scriptures. But others feel maybe that there was more to this story. Maybe it wasn't that because, let me ask you, why would Jesus say that and then the presence of God be on that moment, but then they go ahead and arrest Jesus? It seems to me like that if it was God's presence coming down in a special way, that they would not have continued on with what they were about to do. Possibly, but maybe not. Maybe another explanation to this is the fact that if you go back to John chapter 7, we saw this many, many weeks ago, that these officers, these temple police, these temple guards, they encountered Jesus there, and they came to the chief priests, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and the Pharisees said to them, why didn't you bring him? Why didn't you arrest him and bring him to us? And they said to them, no one ever spoke like this man. 
And so if you, you picture that, these temple guards, and it's not far-fetched to think that many of these same guards would have been part of this large arresting party that were coming for Jesus, and they were within this group, and so they knew that Jesus was special. They knew there was something unique about Jesus. And also, during this time, it was a, a time of great superstition, and so the Roman soldiers, they had heard about this miracle-working Messiah, in fact, even King Herod had heard about Jesus. He wanted to meet Jesus. He wanted Jesus to come and do some of the miracles that he was doing. So Jesus had this reputation. They also, they knew he was a rabbi. They knew he was a man who spoke for God. So even though they were sent to arrest him, they knew there was something unique about Jesus. And it's midnight, it tells us. We're at midnight here. It's dark. There's no street lamps. There's no light. It's dark, except for the lanterns they're carrying. And they come upon these 12 guys, Jesus and his 11 disciples. Who are you looking for? I am. And then all of a sudden, there's temple guards maybe at the front. They stumble backwards. They're tripping over one another. Regardless of what happened here, the text tells us that they fell in the most appropriate way possible. They fell on their faces before the great I am. Whether it was tripping over one another or whether it was God doing something supernatural. I love what one commentator says. Hundreds came to take his life, and they could make no claim on him. They were hopelessly outnumbered by one. Hopelessly outnumbered by one. How fitting they fall down. And so Jesus willingly entered the garden. He willingly steps forward and identifies himself. And he willingly restrains his power. The great I am, the power to just cause people just to fall on their faces. Matthew tells us in his account, he tells us that Jesus said this, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? 12 legions of angels. A legion was about 6,000 troops. We're talking about 72,000 troops or angels that Jesus could bring at a moment's notice he so desired. But Jesus willingly restrained that power. He willingly went into the garden. He stepped forward voluntarily. And he held back his power. And then we see that he willingly sacrificed his life for his friends. Look at verse seven through nine, verses 7 through 9. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. And if you've been here the last few weeks, that's what Jesus prayed in chapter 17, immediately before coming to the garden. He prayed that he would not lose, that, and he thanked God that he had not lost any of his disciples. This was the answer to that prayer. This was a continued answer that God would provide the protection necessary so the resting party would only rest him and he would suffer, and his friends would then go free. That's a beautiful, beautiful picture of what we call the substitutionary atonement. He says, if you seek me, let these men go. Jesus said, take me, not them. Take me, let them go. And it's reminiscent of 2 Corinthians 5.21, where Paul writes, for our sake... God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. 
God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin. The perfect son of God was made sin for us. What's the rest of the verse say? So that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus climbed into our mess. Jesus, who was perfectly holy and had never sinned, was treated as if he were a sinner. He became the object of God's wrath, and he bore the guilt and the penalty for our sin. He took on our trash. He took responsibility for our trash, our sin. And although Jesus remained holy, he was regarded as guilty of all the sins of the world. God treated Jesus as if he were a sinner. Get that through your head. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then God crucified Jesus. He became the object of God's wrath and he bore the penalty of sin in our place. And so when he says to the guards, I told you that I am, so let these men go. What a beautiful picture of the gospel that Jesus sacrificed himself when we deserved to pay the price for our sin. When we deserve to be suffering and dying for our sin, Jesus said, no, I'm going. I'm going. I'm taking on your sin and your punishment so you can have my righteousness. Like many people today, Peter couldn't accept the fact that Jesus had to suffer so he could go free. Look at verse 10 and 11. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, he drew it and struck the high priest's ear and cut off this right ear. He struck the servant of the high priest, cut off his ear, and we even know the servant's name. His name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? You know, with Peter and all his flaws and all his shortcomings, you got to admire, this. in this case, his boldness, right? He's taking on this huge, massive group of soldiers. He comes to Jesus' defense. But sadly, everything about Peter's approach here is wrong. And Jesus rebukes him for stepping in between, trying to step in for, between God and the will of God for Jesus. He says, Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Cup was a common metaphor for God's wrath being poured out on sinners. And Jesus is about to drink the cup in the place of others. And he is the only one who could do it. Peter couldn't accept that exchange. He couldn't accept the fact that, Jesus, you could really do that for me? But what about you? Think about you. Think about the excuses that you've been making up and saying to yourself in order to think that you either have to earn or merit. It's too easy just to believe. I've just got to earn it. I've got to do something. It's just I can't accept the fact that Jesus would just do that for me. I've got to contribute to that. But what we need to remember is that our moral efforts are much too feeble and incredibly too small and always falsely motivated to merit any kind of righteousness or holiness. We don't have to earn our salvation. We don't have to fight for our salvation. Jesus willingly stepped into our mess so we could go free. For Resurrection Sunday, during the promo, if you saw the banners on the street, maybe on social media, we said, Jesus is risen, so what? Well, a few people maybe interpreted that as, what is that about, right? Is that disrespectful? The point is, 
If Jesus did all that, Jesus went through that, and he proved he was who he said he was. He willingly, knowingly went through everything that he went through, into the garden, stepped forward voluntarily. He could have called down angels. He restrained his power. He took his friend's place and let us go free. If Jesus did all that and then just stayed in the grave, what would it matter? But Jesus knew what was going to happen. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. Jesus knew. And everything ultimately hinges upon the resurrection. And so if Jesus died this horrible criminal's death, and if he was buried and he rose again, that changes everything. So Jesus went through all this for you. He went through, literally, he went through hell so you would not have to go to hell. He went through it for you. He conquered death, hell, and the grave. Can you do that? Honestly, can you do that? Can you conquer death? Right, thank you. You're right. No, you can't. You can't conquer death. Have you had a brush with death? Have you had somebody close to you die? Today is, today is Jason Davis's birthday. If you know who that is, Jason Davis sat back over here in this corner faithfully every week. He was killed in a boating accident a little bit over a year ago. Death does not discriminate. And it's coming. And I don't mean to be down on Easter, but until you know, like Sean said, the bad news, you can't recognize that everything hinges on the good news. Our family has dealt with death in a personal way this year, with my mom passing. It's coming. But Jesus conquered it. And when you're 18 years old, the last thing you're thinking about is death, right? You're not thinking about death, but it's coming. Jesus conquered it for you. He conquered hell for you. He conquered the grave for you. He took our place so that we could have life. And it doesn't matter how deep the trash is in your life and how big a mess sin is made in your life. Jesus took it for you. And as Sean so well said, what do we do? We believe. We believe. We trust Jesus. We look to the Savior and we say, I believe. And it's not just we're putting our faith in something that we just wish was true or we hope one day it comes true. John is an eyewitness. He was there. He saw all of these things. And he reports it to us. Jesus removes the stench of sin from your life and gives you his righteousness. No more guilt. No more punishment. No more wrath. No more condemnation. God is for you, not against you. That's what salvation is. Sadly, sadly, thousands of people are sitting in churches today where there's a pastor who's getting up talking about salvation and trying to convince people, come to Jesus, and he's going to give you prosperity, and he's going to make your life easy, and he's going to give you financial and job prosperity. He's just going to pour all these blessings out on you. But there's a part of the gospel we have to understand that Jesus said, count the cost. Count the cost of discipleship. You see, believing isn't just mentally just affirming something. It's embracing it with all that you have. And it doesn't mean earning it or working up to get it. It's truly just the faith is given by God to you. You just trust him with all that you have. You count the cost of being a disciple. And interestingly enough, sadly, our, our culture over the years has 
turn that into something of, of just, it's, it's for my benefit and it's just for my prosperity. But Paul said this in Corinthians, and we close with this. Paul says to a, a group of people who are very much like ours, very materialistic in Corinth, very sexualized culture, and he wrote them this. He said, when we are slandered, we respond graciously. Even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. The world is going to treat you like garbage as a Christian because it treated Jesus like garbage. We're followers of Jesus. We follow him. And as a result of that, we realize where that may lead. And in our culture, some of us are sitting here thinking, you know what, this may not be that far ahead of us where we're really actually persecuted and silent, tried to be silenced for our faith. It's coming. But the answer isn't this political party or that political party or that representative or that senator. The answer is only Jesus Christ to change hearts and change lives. That's where change takes place. And it starts with us looking to the cross, looking to the empty grave, seeing Jesus is alive, and seeing what he did for us, and being willing to be considered as scum and garbage like him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that gives us truth, gives us life, gives us hope. And God, today as we just pause at this moment and we take the Lord's Supper, we take communion to reflect upon your incredible sacrifice and what you did on our behalf and look to your resurrection and the future of your coming, God. I pray that this moment will be a time for us to truly reconsider our priorities and think about the things that we're wasting our precious days, weeks, years on and how quickly we're headed toward an inevitable future of death and to stand before you and give an account. And God, our only hope for that moment is Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen again and his righteousness given to us as a free gift. God, I pray for those who want to be like Peter and think they need to do something or protect something or earn something. God, I pray that you'll help them to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Help them not to look at themselves and think, I can't do this and I can't live this way. God, help them to trust that you come into their lives through the power of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, and you give them the desire and the ability to live a life that you've called them to live. And God, I pray that our time together with, with communion will be a time to recommit ourselves.